Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Welcome to Local Zero. You're listening to Matt, Becky and Fraser. Hello. Hi. So it's getting colder and colder, especially here in Glasgow. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking forward to winter and thinking about how gas prices are starting to rise and the UK's mounting energy crisis. We'll be joined today by Dara Vias of Citizens Advice to help understand how the current energy situation will impact those most vulnerable and also the crucial role that energy advocacy and support services will need to play in the coming weeks and months. I think there's often an assumption that people have made a choice about the heating system in their home and actually they haven't. They just kind of go with what there is. It's a distress purchase. My boiler's broken, I'll get a new one. You know, it's it's a complete behavioural mindset change. We'll also be joined by Dr Jeff Hardy from the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Jeff's a friend of the pod, he's been with us before and I'm sure this time he's actually gunning to beat you, Fraser, in future or fiction. But before that, Jeff's going to help us understand some of the issues that we're seeing more broadly, talking about what this energy crisis means for not only energy supply companies, but also consumers. And more importantly, how local action can help to provide some of the answers. If this isn't an opportunity to think longer term about the future structure of the retail market and its objectives, then I think we're stuffed. And that's not all. Fraser and I have been chatting with Clem Cowton of Octopus Energy to unpack how energy suppliers are responding to the crisis in real time. Sadly, it's not possible to say, well, actually, we're producing lots of cheap wind at the moment, so our customers are going to see the benefit of that. The way the energy system is run and and regulated at the moment doesn't allow us to do that. As always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go find us and follow us at LocalZeroPod to get involved with discussions over there. And also feel free to email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. So as always, we've got Fraser with us. So welcome, Fraser. Welcome. Thanks very much. How, how is everybody doing? We're good. It is T minus, as we speak, T minus five weeks until COP. 
Four weeks when this goes out. Not far away. Which is all a little bit frightening. I looked at my diary the other day and it was like, oh, okay, I've got this, this. Oh my goodness, there's coffee. <laughs> it's a, I'm guessing you're both around. <laughs> it is your, your city after all that's hosting. Yep. Actually very grateful, very grateful to be living in Glasgow because it's almost impossible to get up here otherwise, find accommodation in the city. So yeah. 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 We've been hearing all sorts of tales of uh, people renting out rooms and and what have you because the accommodation situation is so difficult. I've heard of one family uh, who were looking to rent out the house. I think it was to five Inuits from Canada, which is amazing. And Fraser, you've got a similar story, have you? Or? Yeah, yeah. My uh, our, our spare room is just about double booked for the, the full two weeks already. We've got a couple of people coming over from Brazil. We're expecting one or two sort of friends to, to come wow. up from down south as well. Not charging anyone. We're 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 trying to help people get here as much as possible. But it is it's mad. If you look at the prices of things just now, yeah, mm-hmm. it really is just a brass neck. The amount that that people are asking for. Hearing horror stories, absolute horror stories. But we shouldn't dwell too much on the bad news just yet. And obviously, with with our segment that we've been trying to kind of bring in at the uh, the start of the show. Uh, Last few weeks, we've been doing the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we felt that was a little bit too pessimistic. So we've changed it up this week to go for the good, the bad, and the weird. So I don't know <laughs> how this is going to Actually, that's but... our, our, our nickname for the three of us in the pods. You have to yes. decide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Clint Eastwood trilogy I haven't watched. Um, so we're going to begin with good news articles. So Becky... You've you've got some for us. Yeah, I'm I'm in a very positive mood this week. Um, and also given what you've just said, I'm glad that I'm talking about the good news stories and let's hope that this kind of mental connection <laughs> transpires across. Um <laughs> so I I read something this week that made me really smile, which was about um kids, kind of. And so in Hertfordshire, the council there has approved the first net zero carbon school. So it doesn't exist yet, but plans are now in place for a school that's going to have triple glazed windows, solar panels, EV charging points. It's going to be heated with heat pumps. It will have a rooftop outdoor classroom, play areas, and will also incorporate a forest school. Nice. And um, and I believe that they uh, the facility was, was much needed because there's just so much demand for school. But the fact that so much effort's been put into thinking about how it can be sustainable, so not just any energy efficient, but in, engage the kids with these kind of various concepts around sustainability. I mean, I just think that's really heartwarming. Really important. I think it's really, really cool. And I think speak, speaking from our experience with Glasgow Community Energy, which is all school-based, even little measures can can inspire kids to, to care about it a little bit more to get involved. So the idea that you've got this whole eco school mm-hmm. just creating these these green warriors of the future, I think is awesome. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Absolutely. Fantastic news. My kids go to Forest Nursery and I think it's absolutely brilliant the the amount that they are interacting with nature. And, you know, they don't play with plastic toys. They are out there in the woods and really, really, you know, embedded in the natural environment. So I love that that's kind of part of the yeah. the schooling. And it's not just about the the new technology, but it's also about a much broader perspective than that. Yeah. And this isn't the only good news story. Is this is a bumper week for us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, well, I, th- I think this is a good news story. I think there's good bits and, and possibly bits for concern. 
We've been talking about, well, everybody is probably experiencing like the petrol crisis and nobody can get petrol anywhere. And this is, this makes me really glad that I've got my EV at the moment, actually. Um, and also that I don't drive anywhere. Is smug the right word, Becky? <laughs> this good smug news. I mean, I, let's face it, I don't really go anywhere, so it probably wouldn't have affected me anyway. But um, off the back of this, online searches for electric vehicles have skyrocketed uh, by over a thousand percent. In fact, this news article said it was by 1300% wow. as the pumps are running dry. And so this, this doesn't necessarily correlate or translate into EVs being bought, but certainly uh, sparking much more interest and engagement in electric vehicles, which I think can only be positive. I guess the kind of slight, slight concerns that I have is that at the moment, there aren't really the funding or support models to enable people that might not, you know, that might not be able to afford to transition, transition. So we mm. could end up in a situation that does see, you know, inequalities widening. So we need to hope that, that doesn't happen and hope that there are measures put in place to prevent that happening. Yeah. But engaging people with this, with clean transport, that's exciting. And, and even for those who can afford it, the lead-in time is bananas. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it was six months before the... The, the current petrol crisis. So uh, mm -hmm. so we're going to have to tone things down, I'm afraid. Uh, we are moving into yeah. the bad news category. And Fraser, you're up. Yeah, unfortunately, I have the burden of this this week. And the bad news story is something that I, I don't imagine it's going to be a huge surprise to, to most listeners here just now. But this came out in the, the New Statesman just recently. The news is that the UK government is currently paying and has done consistently paying oil and gas companies more money than it takes from them in taxes. So what we found is that UK government is, is paying oil and gas companies some money around decommissioning old plants and old resources, but mostly they're realising this money in tax breaks. Exxon received the highest payouts of any of these companies last year, over £117 million from the UK government. Shell received £110 million, BP received £39. By comparison, and I think this is, this is where it looms into view, this might not seem like a, a huge amount of money in the grand scheme of oil and gas. One, why are they taking that money? But by comparison... Only 145 million was outlined in the UK government budget this March for environment-specific initiatives. Mm. That's not necessarily wider climate or housing or anything like that, but for environmental protection, nearly half the amount of money was set aside than what's been given to, to fossil fuel companies. Wow. Okay. In the last year, not over a period of time, in the last year. Yeah. So the f fossil fuel subsidy is still raging is, is the headline here. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is only around tax breaks. This isn't even necessarily, you know, new licenses for exploration, all this kind of stuff. This is purely in, in tax breaks that have been received. Incredible. Well, I, and I guess, you know, and that, that's in a copy here as well. Yeah. My oh my. It's, it, I wonder if it's as simple, though, as, as it all, and maybe this is my kind of positive outlook pervading through even the bad news stories. But, you know, we know that these that it's going to take some time to transition these industries away from oil and gas to something more renewable. And there are, you know, millions of workers who rely on these jobs. So do we have insight into what this money is actually being used for and whether it is being used in positive ways to support that transition? Because, you know, you talk about these companies. Yes, there are certainly very ugly elements and detrimental elements for these companies, but a number of them are also trying to grow into that clean energy space. So do we have 
any details about that? Does there need to be more accountability in here to look at how it's being spent? I think accountability is the big one there. I think, Becky, what we, all we know for sure um, from, from the article and the research is that some of that money has been around decommissioning. We haven't had any indication. And now, I, I, I don't imagine that, that that amount of money, say 100 and 120 million or so, 110 million, necessarily meets the scale of a transition for workers. But also, these are incredibly wealthy companies who have made billions upon billions, if not trillions, over years and years and years, receiving more subsidy um, as we're trying to wind these things down, than things on the other side, than those green initiatives. And also, do we trust them to really be going green in their transition anyway? I don't, I'm not sympathetic. This segues very nicely into the weird article. Okay, so we're now onto the weird. Let's do it. Uh, t- two little ones. Uh, first one is oil and gas majors. Saw something on uh, Twitter from um, uh, an employee of uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance called uh, Akshat Ratti, who had basically outlined some research from Bloomberg looking at the big oil and gas majors and the level of divestment away from fossil fuel uh, assets and, and the like, and also the levels of clean energy investment. Um, and I guess the good news is from this is that you know all of them, to varying degrees, are, are kind of involved in divestment, some much more than others. So Shell was way, way, way ahead uh, versus the likes of BP and ExxonMobil. But in terms of clean energy investment, really varied, like weirdly varied. So you had uh, companies like Total, um, you had companies like uh, Shell, to a lesser extent, um, Equinor did well on this, investing heavily in clean energy. Some were just not doing it at all. So Conoco, Philips, barely anything. Chevron, barely anything. ExxonMobil, barely anything. So, you know, uh, linking to your story. Where's the money going? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's. The, I think the point is they're not all moving in the same direction. No, so no. question mark about mm. where some are heading and some are not. Exxon were in the news recently. They've got a big lawsuit coming against them just now in the States mm. because they've been undermining climate science. This is the allegation, of course that they've participated systemically in dedicated um, campaigns to undermine climate science, and it's been brought against them in, a, I believe, a, a civil suit in, in the States just now. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. One to follow. And, uh, you know, th- their investment profile would kind of back that uh, stance up. So we shall end on this. Um, the Orca plant in Iceland um, recently opened. This is a, a, a carbon or air, air capture carbon uh, and sequestration plant. 4,000 tons of CO2 to be captured every year. Um, To give you a sense of how much carbon that is, that's roughly equivalent to 870 cars. Uh, And the plant will cost between 10 and 15 million uh, dollars, not pounds, to build. So um, I wanted to, uh, weird in the sense that I wanted to kind of compare this against, um, you know, other costs for sequestration particularly planting trees, afforestation, and the rest. Um, so any listeners, please uh, chime in. Let us know if you've if you've run the numbers on this. But uh, some serious, serious installation out in Iceland, which we'll hopefully hear more about. So from the good, the bad, and the weird news stories of the day to the big story of the day, we're talking about the energy crisis. Uh, Hello, I'm Dr. Jeff Hardy. I'm a senior research fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London, and I lead the bit of the Energy Revolution Research Consortium that looks at governance of future smart local energy systems. Hello, I'm Dara Vias, and I am Head of Future Energy Services at Citizens Advice. Citizens Advice is the official consumer watchdog for energy consumers, and we give both advice and advocate on behalf of consumers. 
Jeff, Dara, welcome. Uh, thank you for making the time. It's excellent to have you on. And Jeff, of course, welcome back. Um, so today we're talking about uh, the issue that is plastered all over the news and, and has been for a little while now. Uh, and shows no threat of of disappearing over the coming winter, which is the energy crisis. So I think the first question to you both is, what is responsible for the surge in energy bills? So it, it feels like a perfect storm is what we have at the moment. So we have globally gas prices are four times higher um, than they were in April. We have had low wind. So we're increasingly, we have a lot of wind in our system, wind power, um, and it's been really low in September. I was looking at the stats on National Grid earlier, and it looks like it's about 3% down on average. We've also had both planned and unplanned closures of nuclear and fossil fuel plant, uh, so generators, and that means that there's less generation around um, to meet demand. Um, and one of our interconnectors between us and France went on fire um, and is closed down, and it's closed down until next year. And that's a gigawatt of power. Wow. So that's, you know, a sizable power station offline or not an option anymore. And the final thing, which is important in all of this, there's also a little Brexit issue going on. Just a little issue. <laughs> yeah, just a little issue. So we're no longer in the internal energy market. Um, so the way in which we trade with Europe means that we're no longer in the auctions that set prices, um, which means we don't get a say in that. We just take them at the end of it. So it's 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 messy, it's complex, but it means as a consequence, it's it's very expensive for power right now. So Jeff, like my brain doesn't really, I get some of the stuff that you're saying, you know, when you tell me it's not so windy, like I can picture that, I understand that. Just break down what you were saying about Brexit and the energy markets and that we just take the prices that we're given. I mean, why, why don't we set that ourselves? Like, is there a challenge from um, the regulation side of things in the UK? Is it that we don't have appropriate regulations? Um, will they be put in place? Like, can you just break that down a little bit more? Yeah, it, it, it's actually quite a lot simpler, I think, um, which is when we came out of Europe, we decided to come out of the internal energy market. And that's where day ahead prices um, in Europe for energy commodities like electricity and gas are set. So we used to bid and be part of that market. And now we just take whatever price it's cleared at. So there are other experts in the world who know a lot more about um, the ins and outs of internal energy markets. But it's, you know, it's a component of all of this because we're not, you know, we're not involved in that auction. We're just taking results from it. And they're obviously not favorable. If you look at the disparity between UK power prices and European prior prices, we've been typically higher throughout this really tricky few week period. So a lethal cocktail of a whole range of factors. Dara, is anything else to, to add? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think there is, because I think um, Jeff set, set out the case for what's happening with energy this winter. But the reality is, is people's lives revolved around a, a lot more than just energy. And this winter is proving to kind of have a lot of fairly toxic stuff in store for, for an awful lot of people. So energy aside, which obviously we're going to focus on, We've also got the impending cut to the universal credit £20 increase, which is going to affect um, at least 2.3 million people, I think, are going to struggle with that. Um, and I think also it's not just the universal credit, it's um, high inflation, it's the cost of food, access to food. We're getting so many people coming to Citizens Advice asking for 
help with things like food bank uh, referrals as well as you know the fuel bank referrals where you can get vouchers for your prepay meter yeah also getting parents in who are like needing help to buy things like nappies and milk you know the stuff you'd think of as the basics um and nobody feels proud to do that nobody wants to do that um and i think adding the uh, stress of increasing energy bills is going to be almost a step too far for far too many people and I think it's a real worry for this winter and that's why so much of what we've been calling for at Systems Advice on, on this issue is to do with trying to maintain that £20 increase to, to universal credit because it can make a, a huge amount of difference. So you're, you're already seeing this demand as you say, for support, not just energy, but outside of energy. In essence, that the pressure is already being felt and we're, we're in what, as we record this, we're at the end of September. So uh, last week was the first week that um, obviously all, the, all of this started. And um, in the space of seven days, we saw a 9,000% increase to hits on our website for the page about what do I do if my supplier um, fails. My goodness. Those are the ways that we we understand the worries of the nation, as it were. Yeah, so this is just coming on top. I mean, there's a perfect storm, as, as Jeff was describing, in terms of all the stuff that's happening in the energy space, but there's a perfect storm in terms of, you know, the crunch that a lot of people are feeling. So, I mean, what sort of support can they get? So folk that are coming to your website and coming to, uh, to talk to you in one form or another, I mean, what is out there to help them? The first thing I think that people really need reassurance about is that um, they'll still have gas and electricity coming into their homes. I think people do get really worried about what's going to happen. So, um, you know, understanding that your supply won't stop is really important. And then till now, there's been a really a tried and tested safety net. You know, it's in place, it's worked before, and it's there to make sure things will keep running if a company goes bust. The advice we give is for people to take a meter reading, maybe take a picture of their meters if they can, to take a note of their account balance and keep hold of any bills they've got, any statements. Um, we tell people about how gas and electricity regulator Ofgem will be moving them to a new supplier. And we also tell people not to switch until their account's been moved to a new supplier because so much can go wrong if they try and switch now. People also ask about whether they should be like um, cancelling their direct debit. So we, we our, our advice is to wait until the new supplier contacts them um, and they should be hearing from the new supplier sort of within two weeks. It's a guarantee that your credit balance will be safe, but there's no guarantees around whether you, if you've got a debt repayment plan in place or if you get warm home discount. And for us, those are the two big gaps this coming winter, the issues around warm home discount and people who are in debt. We want government and Ofgem to think quite hard about how best to support these people. Obviously, there's support out there. And Dara, you and your organisation are first and foremost in that queue to support. But the energy sector is regulated by Ofgem, who we've heard a lot about over the last few weeks in terms of the energy crisis. How is regulation dealing with this crisis? And to what extent is it making things better or worse? So on price, um, then there is a price cap in place um, across all of the energy suppliers, the energy retailers, um, not for all of their customers, but for a substantial proportion of their customers. And that sets the maximum price they can charge for electricity and gas. And that's a calculation between the industry and the regulator, but the regulator sets that. Now, as it happens at the moment, anyone with a customer on a price cap as a supplier um, is losing money. Um, because the prices are so high, particularly if they're not 
hedge. So they haven't bought their energy in advance at a price they can accept and that fits within the cap. A lot of suppliers are basically living hand to mouth at the moment. Um, so buying from spot markets, even from the balancing markets, which are very expensive right now. So the price cap protects customers to some extent, but it is going up. In fact, it's going up now. And what you can guarantee right now is that the price that the companies have been facing now is going to reflect in the next price cap in the new year. So prices are going to go up again. You know, So that as well is storing up quite a reasonable amount of trouble for those who are struggling to pay bills right now. Yeah, There's lots of other things that are going on. Most of your listeners will be reading about suppliers failing, some quite big ones. I think there's one and a half million customers whose supplier have failed recently. Now, as Dara says, if your supplier fails, stay put. It will get sorted out. It goes through a process called supplier of last resort that Ofgem manages and someone else will take on those customers. The issue at the moment, which people might be reading about in the press, is if you get a lot more suppliers failing, which is quite likely, then what companies are taking on is a lot of customers, um, but with a lot of price risk. You know, We know the prices are really high at the moment, so they're basically asking the question, can I afford to take on billions of pounds worth of new customers on all of the risk that that entails? So there's quite an interesting bun fight going on between the companies and the regulator at the moment and the government to say, for the companies that are left when all of this goes through, how are we going to survive ourselves if we don't have some sort of guarantee from government that's kind of like going to stop us from toppling, that is going to allow us to raise the finance and so forth. So there's a lot of that going on. You'll hear about loan guarantees and all sorts of things. It's all really saying, I'm going to take on billions of pounds worth of new risk and I can't manage it very well at the moment. Dara, what are citizens' advice asking Ofgem to do next? We've called on Ofgem um, for some time now to kind of consider what's been happening in the market. As the um, advocate for energy consumers, we have quite a lot of evidence and insight into what's happening in people's lives and, and when they're contacting us. And we have known for some time that when there is a supplier who perhaps has a what you could describe as a risky business model is offering tariffs that are, you know, incredibly low, so low that you could argue they're unsustainable, or they have a particularly bad customer service. And we know that because, you know, we're seeing increases in the calls to us. Yeah, That's when the kind of warning lights go off for us, you know. And the thing that's happening now is that's different is that even well-run companies are struggling and are going to struggle, just as sort of, as Jeff was saying. And that, I think, changes things slightly. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to reshape the retail energy market. When, when it comes to trying to meet net zero targets, we're going to have to really think about what does a well-functioning retail market do to contribute to meeting net zero targets because customer service is absolutely paramount. Decent pricing is absolutely important too. But we need to be thinking about what we're expecting from this market. We want this market to lead on innovation. We want this market to be considering how, you know, smart, innovative tariffs, products and appliances can be put in people's homes, how people can interact with different things to do with their energy to use energy when it's cheapest, to be using things smartly um, in the most sustainable way. And that means it's only going to get more confusing. It's only going to get harder for people to navigate. Yeah. We're going to have 
more bundled products. So, for example, you know, we're beginning to see it, I think, a little bit with the EVs, particularly with the smart chargers and, you know, X number of miles per however much you charge and things like that. Those things are already incredibly hard to pick apart and for people to understand. And there are huge gaps in consumer protections um, when it comes to that new aspect of the market. That said, we're talking about today's market and why it's experiencing the problems it is. And I genuinely think Ofgem is going to have to really think about, and government too, really think about, you know, how to keep protecting the people who need protection the most. So as as the technologies, as the software, as, as the business models innovate and change, so has the regulation and the policy, because otherwise it's ahead of the game and households and the vulnerable could, could fall through the gaps. Yeah, and, you know, slightly philosophical as well, isn't it? You know, there's a, we, we've had a market that's based on, you know, we, we measure people's engagement with the market based on how much they switch. Whereas in the future market, you're going to want people to be taking on more long-term commitment to a supplier because they're probably highly likely going to be buying something from them as well. They might be repaying a heat pump. You might be considering. So whilst there's all these questions about interoperability, if you've got different things in your home that need to talk to one another, there's also this relationship with a company. And are we best measuring people's engagement with the market on switching or should it be about something else should it be about the experience they get the loyalty penalty and the arguments that led to the price cap are a really good example here of you know why we need to think quite creatively of, of a few things one is how to protect the people who need protection the most the other is you know how do we have a system that really actually just promotes and supports improving energy efficiency in homes. How do we do that? Because we can't seem to get that right, can we? Now, obviously, energy suppliers themselves are a key component here. So we wanted to get a supplier's perspective in the midst of everything that's happening. To dig into that, Matt and I grabbed a chat with one of the bosses of Octopus Energy. We'll be back with Dara and Jeff after this. Hello, I'm Clem Cowton and I'm Director of External Affairs at Octopus Energy. So obviously there's a there's a whole situation going on just now around energy supply. And Octopus have kind of been at the at the forefront of a lot of the, the headlines and coverage recently. Can you talk us through a little bit about, about how you've been affected as as Octopus and how the, the company are dealing with the, the current energy situation? Well, I suppose most directly we've been affected because we have taken on the customers of Avro. Uh, through Ofgem supplier of last resort process. So basically we are the sort of emergency supplier that that all those customers will switch to in the background. Um, more generally, I think Octopus is extremely well financed. And actually uh, on Monday, we announced that Al Gore's fund generation had, had, um, had invested $600 million into Octopus, bringing us to a valuation of uh, $4.6 billion dollars which is relevant simply because I think what I'd say is Octopus isn't worried about our own position in, in what's going on in the supplier market. I think what we're seeing is some less well-backed and or less well-run suppliers going out of business in what would normally be a sort of natural course of of a competitive market. But because we're seeing very, very spiky gas prices, very high gas prices, unprecedented we are seeing 
all of those happening all at once, whereas normally they'd be spread out probably over the course of a year or certainly over the course of this season. And that has meant that there were some nerves over the past couple of weeks as to whether the existing industry, Octopus and others, might be able to absorb the potential sort of failures coming their way. As it turns out, that's kind of gone without a hitch and there is plenty of there's kind of plenty of uh, funding in the system from the larger suppliers to be able to absorb that. This is a time of year when companies have just paid their renewables obligation bill, which is the, the, the bill that we have to pay for to subsidize old renewable power plants. So this is why things has happened tend to happen around this time of year like this is because there's generally a sort of shortfall of cash. So if something hits, suppliers have a little bit less in the bank to be able to weather the storm, and, and that's what's going on at the moment. So, of, of course, you know, with the, the bill prices uh, escalating, I'm likely to do so. I think Ofgem have already committed to an uh, additional £139 increase in October as the price cap rises. Those that are going to get hardest hit are those who are already struggling to afford the bills. So... What are Octopus doing, or the sector more broadly, and what does Ofgem, the regulator, expect you to do to look after those that are maybe struggling to heat their homes? That's a good question. Um, so Octopus has always started from the position of the customer coming first. And that doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but um, it, it may not surprise you to discover that in the energy supply, that has been a pretty revolutionary position. So our our focus has always been to do what's right by the customer first and then look at the license second rather than attempt to build a business around what Ofgem is telling us we have to do. And, and actually where we, where the, you know, our, our philosophy is that if it's right for the customer, it will probably be right in the license. And if it's right for the customer but, but contradicts the license, we'll go and talk to Ofgem about that, which is a sort of roundabout way of saying what Ofgem is telling us to do at the moment isn't is sort of what we're doing already slash we're going even further. Yeah. Our uh, long-standing customers, our existing customers, are already on a tariff that is capped to £51 lo- below the price cap. So we have we are already using, you know, we're effectively sort of subsidising our customers through the winter. In addition to that, we always take a very individualized approach to your customers. So rather than sort of identifying some characteristics of a customer that might traditionally be considered vulnerable and then kind of doing a, a bunch of kind of box ticking stuff to, to in theory support those as according to what Ofgem wants us to do, what we tend to do is listen to customers rather than what tends often happens is that it's quite badly managed and then some people suddenly get hit a year later with a very high bill. And are you expecting come October, as these bills rise, the phone to be ringing off the hook with with those who are struggling to pay? I mean, are you putting the groundwork in place for a, for a difficult winter for you and your bill payers? So it, it will be a difficult winter and actually a difficult spring as these kind of high prices continue to be reflected in the in the energy market. In terms of you know what we're expecting from our customers, I think yes, there will be some people getting in touch with us, but we are very well equipped to handle that and to kind of hold their hands through it. So I, I wouldn't say that we're, we're we're not worried from a business perspective, but I think it is going to be very tough on households who, of course, will already be dealing with other challenges in, in terms of their budgets, not least the uh, reduction in universal credit. 
So I guess it's it's there are there are things immediately happening, Clem, and obviously it's it's something that we're going to have to buckle up for for a little while. But I guess the the million dollar question is, as you see it, how do you think we can we can get around or or fix this issue, both in in the shorter and the longer term? What things need to change in terms of of energy supply for that more um that more sustainable model that that makes sure that customers are, are protected as well. So actually, there's quite an appealing fix that is available to the government right now. About, I think it's something like 23% of customers' electricity bill is actually paying for green and social levies, as it's often called, but things like the renewables obligation and, and some of the social schemes. They're sort of areas of policy that you might otherwise expect to kind of sit within general taxation, but for historical reasons, actually sit on the electricity portion of the bill. So it's very significant. And I think, you know, depending on where prices go, could end up being about 200 to 300 pounds sitting on top of customer bills. Because all suppliers pretty much are pricing at the level of the price cap at the moment. If the government were to remove those levies from bills and, and move them back into general taxation or, or you know, arguably where they perhaps should have been to begin with, you could have a very direct impact on customer bills. So you would be helping people out very directly this winter and just as importantly, helping to reduce our overexposure to gas. Now, that's because at the moment, gas is gas heating is effectively subsidised because there are so many taxes placed on the electricity portion of the bill and because there's so, almost no taxes placed on the gas portion of the bill. People uh, have been very slow and actually it just hasn't really happened at all to move to electric heating, i.e. via heat pumps, in spite of the fact that heat pumps are more efficient and better technologies, both in terms of the kind of comfort and in terms of the uh, safety and and then, of course, carbon. Actually, because electricity bills have been so high historically, people have not wanted to move away from their gas boilers onto heat pumps. That has meant that we kind of we're in the situation we find ourselves now as a nation where we are incredibly exposed to spikes in gas prices because we are burning too much of it both in electricity, but most importantly, you know, as our heating bill, we almost exclusively have gas heating and a bit of oil in this country. So, you know, by removing those levies from electricity bills, government could have a kind of double whammy, you know, a win-win of both addressing bills and, you know, addressing the kind of long-term structural issues that have led us to this position. And then, of course, improving our climate leadership ahead of COP. So there's a potential very big win for the government here. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the point about shifting levies from electricity gas is an interesting one that sat through a very fascinating uh, presentation from Jenny Hill of the, the Climate Change Committee, actually pointed that doing so would disproportionately burden uh, the fuel poor because they have a higher ratio of gas to electricity. Um, but I, I think that's maybe a discussion for another day. Uh, it's an interesting one. I suspect that what Jenny is talking about is moving those levies from electricity to gas rather than moving them from electricity into general taxation, i.e. paying it from treasury coffers rather than paying it via sort of a subsidy on the gas bill. Yeah, I understood. I thought you were suggesting after the general taxation point that there was uh, gas was essentially being under levied versus electricity. I mean, it is. But at the same time, when you're facing extremely high gas prices, it's it's probably not very responsible to be, to be putting, the, putting them up. 
certainly we should be looking to, while gas prices are so high, certainly not not looking to add any sort of extra burden there. Although it's worth noting, by the way, that everybody who pays a gas bill also pays an electricity bill. So if you get a reduction on one side uh, in addition to the other, then it, it you know it does sort of balance out. Are octopus seeing increasing levels of interest in the types of tariffs you're offering that are very much aligned to EVs and heat pumps in the midst of this energy crisis? Is the appetite for electrification growing or not? I wouldn't say as a result of this crisis. And that's because, again, because we are so overexposed to gas uh, in our electricity system, electricity prices are still pegged to wholesale gas prices. So sadly, it's not possible to say, well, actually, we're producing lots of cheap wind at the moment. So our agile customers, for example, are going to see the benefit of that. Yeah. Sadly, the, the, the way the energy system is run and, and regulated at the moment doesn't allow us to do that. We would like that to change. And we've been talking to government and Ofgem about that for, for years now. What I would say is that we have never marketed our agile tariff and, and the other kind of related time of use, smart time of use tariffs that that, that help to um, underpin things like EVs and, and heat pumps. But we have seen an absolute explosion in interest in them since we launched them. So they have massively outperformed our expectations. It's a slightly artificial product in that while we pass on the benefits of cheap wind to customers, we don't receive those benefits ourselves. We effectively subsidise those tariffs. And we now have um, tens of thousands of people on them, and that is becoming quite expensive. The, the, the final question, Clem, that I had to ask actually speaks to, I saw, I saw the tweet you put out about this yesterday, and you, you brought it up there around things like curtailment, around things like cheap wind, where you'd mentioned that you're working with Ofgem, with government, about potentially trying to get this, this system changed. How would you like to see that change to run more optimally, either, well, both for yourselves and consumers, and speaking to what we do at the podcast, which is often sort of focused around around the local role in all of this, do you see local playing a part in, in those changes going forward? Do you think this can help? And whether that's insulate against these external gas price shocks or or anything else, do you think local has a role to play in that change? I certainly do, and, and we do. What, what, where I would disagree with maybe some other contributors is is how how that's expressed. So what I don't believe, and we don't particularly believe, is there should be any significant role, for example, for local authorities or creating sort of local area energy plans. That is an we believe is an unnecessarily bureaucratic approach to reforming our energy market, and, and we think it would act to sort of slow down innovation rather than rather than increase it, and actually would end up being more expensive. Where we do believe the system needs to be reformed in order to create more local energy markets, and you know to better reflect the benefits of renewables and to make the system as a whole more efficient is uh, we have a sort of organizing principle you know it's very it's a very blunt tool but this idea that the cheapest electron should be the greenest electron that's traveled the so shortest distance down the emptiest wires i.e um, we should be organizing our system so that you are using your green electrons when they are produced to the greatest possible extent by renewable energy and where they are produced to the greatest possible extent to eliminate or reduce losses that occur when you transport 
electricity over distance and to avoid having to, for example, curtail winds because there's not enough demand in the local area. That way, we believe that you could create a real opportunity for local communities to see the discounting that could happen if, for example, there are high wind speeds in their local areas, which, by the way, is another tariff that we have. It's called our, <laughs> our fan club. Excellent, excellent name for a tariff. I'm a big fan of puns, whatever we can squeeze them in. <laughs> uh, but Clem, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and for the conversation. Thank you, Clem. Thanks very much for having me. So what a great chat with Clem Calton from Octopus Energy. Just picking up on some of the, the conversations we were having earlier and, and Dara, you started chatting about new ways of thinking of what an energy supplier could be doing and not just selling us those kilowatts of energy, but actually buying products for them or or, or paying them back over, over periods of time for, for services. And I, I always get a bit dismayed actually about how we seem to split supply and demand, how we seem to think on the one hand about energy bills and all of the things we're using energy for. And then it's like a completely different headspace and conversation around energy efficiency and insulation and warmth. And of course, if we had better insulated homes, we would be using a lot less of everything to achieve what we want to. And we'd be addressing fuel poverty as well. So I really like this focus and this this focus and, and sort of ideas around new sorts of business models. And so I guess, you know, do, do we need that? Do we need a very different type of energy business model, supplier, you know, marketplace? What could that actually look like on the ground? And, and how would that, I mean, Jeff, how would that interplay, do you think, with the regulations that are out there? Is this sort of future even possible? Um, is there interest in the industry from going down this route? Or is this just like a real pipe dream? So firstly, I think we're stuffed if it's not possible. I really hope it is. Secondly, just coming back to something Dara said a minute ago, energy efficiency, why is it so hard? And it, and it is. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, Becky. It's because we separate supply and demand. But if you think about it, the impact of these prices would be so much less if all homes were energy efficient. You know, it is, it is as simple as that. It doesn't make it go away, but it makes it less painful because it brings down the proportion of the bill. It brings down a lot of other things. So we do need this sort of innovation. Now, I could talk for hours about business model innovation because I've spent far too much of my time at both Ofgem and as a researcher thinking about this. But let's just, let's just think about a couple of examples. Dara also made another excellent point, which is in the future, it looks like having a long-term relationship with your customer is a good thing. And there's lots of good reasons for that. But one is you can learn more about each other. Um, so you can learn about behaviors and habits and what really works for you. Um, for each side. But more importantly, it means that it does allow you to install stuff in homes and then get it paid back slowly, like you do with an expensive mobile phone and a service contract. You know, the capital cost of the phone and the service contract are two separate things, um, but you're paying them both back, which means you can fire the service provider if you want, but you still have to pay back the capital to someone. So an example of a business model that really suits that is something called energy as a service whereby instead of selling the commodity, so I'm selling you kilowatt hours of electricity or kilowatt hours of gas, you're selling warmth or mobility or illumination or whatever it might be, the services that you demand. And the reason why it's really interesting is because it disconnects the service from the commodity. So if I'm a service provider, it might well be being, 
be within my interest to give you the service to make you comfortable in your home or to make you mobile with the least amount of commodity or the commodity at the lowest possible price, because that way I don't have to buy much of it um, in the energy markets, which might be quite turbulent or might be quite like this month. So it incentivizes, say, if I'm selling you heat as a service or comfort as a service, it incentivizes me maybe to insulate your home and then to install the most efficient energy um, the heating technology, and then to kind of like learn about your behavior so I can really de-risk when I buy the commodity to make you warm, because I know when you're going to be home from work. I know when you're going to need to be warm. I know what temperature you're comfortable with. I even know what room you're in, potentially. That sounds a bit invasive, by the way. but That, that terrifies me. A, a little, Jeff, yeah. A little, <laughs> little bit. Little bit. <laughs> that absolutely but terrifies me. Just, I, I want to... Probe into this a bit more because I, I mean, this is really exciting and also a bit scary. But you know, is this something that's only going to work in the owner-occupied sector? What about people that rent? How could this work for them? Because you know, they don't own the home; they may not be in it for that length of time. Oh, are we running the risk here of widening inequality? I think it it runs that risk. So, however the market develops, it has to work for all of its participants. And at the moment, we know we have a really important split incentive between a landlord and their tenant, where it's it's the landlord would pay for the measures, the tenant pays the bills. So the landlord doesn't see the benefit unless they get more rent mm. out of it. You know, those sort of things are material. So business models are going to have to work across that typical split incentive. But also, it might just be the case that some of these things need to be mandated, standards placed on landlords to make homes much more comfortable without telling them how. And that allows the business models to come in and help with that process. So really important, the split incentive, but it might require intervention to make that, to make it work for all concerned. And Dara? I don't disagree with anything Jeff said, but it's really hard to not view that as quite utopian, right? It's really hard to not see that as futuristic and not really relevant for most people today. Because it's not, right? We have the most diverse housing stock. It's really hard to make some really basic changes. People have things like thermostatic radiator control valves and don't know how to use them. Really basic stuff. So, you know, you can put things in people's homes. They need to know how to use them. So there's a kind of like, there's this, um, the, it's great and it could work and it could make a hot, really big difference. But how do we get there? That's the that's that, that really tricky exam question. How do we get there? And I think if you consider what we know right now, we know that people want a warm, comfortable home. We know that people want a heating system that's affordable to run. We know that people want a heating system that's responsive and can give them heating and hot water when they want it. And we know that people want it to be reliable, right? Those are the things we know about how people feel about their homes. We also know that making these changes is going to be disruptive and it's going to be hard. And I think there's often an assumption that people who own their homes or have a mortgage um, have made a choice about the heating system in their home. And actually they haven't. Um, I think there's also this assumption that people want to make a choice. Often they don't. They just kind of go with what there is. It's a distress purchase. My boiler's broken. I'll get a new one. You know, it's not something you... It's not desirable. It's seen as a part and parcel of what's in your home and you just have to do it. So it's a complete behavioral mindset change at the same time that we're asking people to um, make a whole host of other changes to their lives 
um, because of this net zero target. We're expecting a net zero strategy from government. We're expecting um, a, uh, a part of that to be about net zero behavior change. And assistance advice, one of the things we're most co conscious of in this space is this massive lack of consumer protections when it comes to this path to net zero. Because when people come to us for help and support, they really don't know where to go because insulation has gone wrong and their house is now moldy or the installer that fitted something has gone out of business and the technology isn't working and they don't know how to get the guarantee or warranty sorted. And they don't know where to go and they don't know where their rights are. And it doesn't help that there are multiple codes and consumer protection schemes in this space. It is very, very hard because it's outside of the regulated market. And then in the regulated market, in and that's that's when we're talking about it's kind of, kind of upfront costs, right? We're talking about changes people need to make to their homes that are going to cost them money. But we're also entering this this winter and this world in which the ongoing costs are already so mind blowing and the changes are so significant. You know, people who have um, been with a supplier that's gone bust, their bills have gone up on average about £30 a week. Wow. That's an awful lot for people to cope with. So what needs to happen next? And, and of course, this is the local zero pod. So we're, we're constantly asking questions about what can be done locally. I appreciate some solutions will need to come from national, regional. But what needs to happen next? Who needs to do what? And, and locally, are there solutions that maybe listeners communities we could be doing a little bit more yeah um let me throw a, a few ideas out there and see where we get to a lot of these issues that we're talking about they're kind of the slightly more future issues about kind of like customers net zero journeys or homes net zero journeys even small businesses is all very local in nature you know it's it's stuff going in your house in where you live and it's your car or your mobility and it's you know your home that might be kind of retrofitted with insulation, all of that kind of thing. So some of the things that we've been talking about in Energy Rev is whether or not thinking about the net zero journeys of places is really a discussion best had and in some ways concluded locally, you know, because, you know, your local government knows about the local people, their values, their preferences, all of that kind of thing. Slightly more trusted, you might argue, the national government as well. And there's also, you know, local supply chains, there's all sorts of other things that could come together because the transition a place goes through might be quite specific. You know, it might very much suit a heat network um, or it might very much suit an electrification pathway. It might suit, if it's next to an industrial site, a hydrogen pathway. You know, those are very local things. And that therefore the transition they're going through is local, which might mean that the businesses delivering on that are also local in some ways. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, but it could be. So th there's that side of thing. The other thing I want to be definitely leave with is we, there is going to be a lot of consolidation in the energy supplier market. You know, I don't think we're finished by a long shot. Um, there'll be a lot of companies having a lot of frantic conversations with the regulator, with government and so forth. What we're going to see is less players in the energy supply market. And if this isn't an opportunity to think longer term about the future structure of the retail market and its objectives, then I think we're stuffed once again if we don't have that conversation. So for example, if there are fewer players in the market, is there a reasonable opportunity to discuss about the role of a supplier in taking customers on a net zero journey? You know, and perhaps even thinking about how you would mandate suppliers to do something about that, mm -hmm. whether it's kind of like a, you know, you have a average customer carbon 
allowance and it goes down over time. Yeah. You know, and it, therefore it doesn't tell you how you're going to do that, but it tells you you've got to do it. So there's, there's ideas like that as well um, in there, but energy efficiency for goodness sake. Yeah. Well, why not? Why aren't we doing it? Many, many reasons. Dara, you have the final word on this. So next steps and how local do they need to be? I feel like there has to be a national overview of that that supports local different local areas to build on their own diversity but maintains some equity across the country for me i think that's incredibly important because there's such a disparity in the way that different areas are experiencing deprivation and poverty and even even things like um the uh, efficiency of homes it varies so much area to area and i think that what we know is it is already really hard for so many people and energy isn't necessarily top of their list. Perhaps it is in terms of how much they pay for their bills, but certainly not efficiency. What I think is really exciting though, and that there's a lot of optimism about some areas having a brilliant take on this. You know, there's like the West Midlands Combined Authority and their net zero neighbourhoods work. There's Greater Manchester uh, regional authority and their housing retrofit which Andy Burnham chairs and is just really progressive and really thinking about kind of whole house retrofit in an area and I think there's some real optimism about it but for me it's how do we make sure it's fair across the country because there are areas where local government is basically bankrupt yeah. and all they're doing is social care in the bins if they can how do they do this stuff and how is that fair to those people Dara Jeff, thank you very much. Um, I am hoping you might be able to stick around for a few minutes whilst I hand the reins over to our one and only Fraser Stewart for Future or Fiction. Thanks very much, Matt. And can I just say as well that that was a really, really good conversation. And Dad, I was so glad to leave it off on, on that note about, about equity and about, about different experiences and, and how we need to think about these things as we're trying to address the problem now and in the longer term as well. Really, really good conversation and important. Anyway, now to close off on a slightly lighter note, our seasoned listeners will know that we end every episode with a game called Future or Fiction. Future or Fiction is a game whereby I present our esteemed panellists with a new technology idea and they have to decide if it's real, i.e. if they think it's the future, or if they think I have just completely made it up, in which case it is fiction. So this episode's technology is called... Pencil it in. That is. Pencil it in. So we all know that producing paper takes cutting down a lot of trees. Trees which themselves are crucial in removing carbon from the atmosphere. But how about this? A small stationery company have designed a line of products that have seeds built into them. Once the stationery has fulfilled its purpose, whether that's a notebook or a pencil, the seeds can then be planted to grow flowers, trees and herbs. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? My oh my, Fraser. This is a tough one. Um, <laughs> I've got a little anecdote about this in a minute, but I won't bore you with it immediately. So let's hand over to our guest. Jeff, you've done this once before. Um, I think it's fair to say you didn't get it right last time. So you've <laughs> you've joined me in, with the dunce hat on. So this is your chance to shine. What do you think? Well, I love the idea of it, even if it doesn't exist. So I wanted to. So I'm going with future. 
future. Okay. Come on, Jeff, give us some more. Give us some more snippets. Um, I was going to say something related to seeds, and then realised I better not. But you've got this. You've got the chemistry background, right? Is this feasible? Is this possible? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, there's lots of um, you can make pens out of something called polylactic acid, um, which is a biodegradable polymer. Um, there's lots of other biodegradable plastics that are long long lived enough to be useful in life. And then you can just put them in the earth and they will biodegrade. So if you put a seed in there, and I suppose if it was kept dry, then there's no reason why not. In fact, I've seen something like this, but I'm not, I can't remember what it was. I have seen paper with it in and, I, and we got a, an invitation to a wedding through the other day, which looked very sort of, you know, nicey, nicey, lovely stationary paper. And it said at the bottom, uh, wildflowers are within this invitation. So my, my wife immediately rips it up and throws it onto the um, onto the flower bed to, to make flowers. And then say, well, did you get the details for the wedding? No, no. <laughs> so we still don't know when the wedding will take place. It may have already happened. It may be in the future. But So I do know this exists. Dara, what, what's your feeling on this? Um, I think it's future. And the reason I think it's future is because, you know, there's restaurants that I'm sure you've eaten at, well-known chains, where they give you those little folding book of paper matches that you can get yeah and they're actually seed sticks aren't they so if you can do that you can easily do something chemically that jeff said that would make the lead in the pencil as well and uh use that sort of thing so i'm i'm firmly on the future here i'm sold i'm sold like the three of you have made such compelling arguments that i went into this thinking i've got absolutely no idea and I am completely bought into the future I have no idea what restaurant or restaurant chain you're talking about Dara so we got to, you got to share that with me after because I want to go there <laughs> uh well okay so you're in Jeff's in Dara's in I'll play devil's advocate I think stationery uh, uh you know is on the way out obviously you know <laughs> we're all none of us are writing letters to each other as we speak the most sustainable stationery is the stationery you don't use <laughs> We know what I'm going to say next. Da, 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 da. Silicon Valley, who's going to invest in this stuff? And I say this every time and I get it wrong, but it wouldn't be fun if somebody didn't come down on the other side. So I think whilst probably paper bits and pieces, not pens and pencils, so uh, I'm out. Okay. Is this just because you don't know where the wedding is? I, I'm <laughs> still, yeah. It could be happening now, Jeff. Could be happening now. Yeah, he's got a lovely mint plant in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely poppies, no wedding. Okay, okay, so we're unanimous apart from Matt, which of course means that the majority is right. It is the future. Every year, a staggering 80,000 trees are cut down to meet the global demand of 14 billion pencils. Left Hand Design founder wanted to, Left Hand Design being the, the, the company, wanted to create an alternative line of pencils and notebooks that can live a second life as a plant. So they put little seeds through through the pencil once you're, you've used it down to the nib, plant that in your garden, wherever, and you can get herbs and flowers from it. We also thought about integrating that into our wedding invitations, Matt, but I think we might have to second guess it. <laughs> Does, doesn't work, Fraser. <laughs> Send him a text as well. Assuming he's going. Brilliant. Well, I guess all that's left to say then is, uh, is thank you to our guests. So thank you, Dara. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Fraser, for another fantastic feature or fiction. So glad to have it back after missing it last time. Um, you've been listening to Local Zero. If you haven't already, go and find us and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Get involved with all the discussions going on there. Uh, remember, you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. Um, but for now, thanks for listening and bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 B
produced by Bespoken Media.